ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. Russia watching can be challenging, and not just because it's hard to understand a country as complex as Russia. For many of us, it's difficult because we're doing it from afar and don't have the opportunity to get a sense of the tone of the place on a daily basis. This makes the internet a key resource for news, commentary, social attitudes, and behavior. Russian internet culture has become an indispensable window into Russia. But what does the Russian internet and social media say? What kinds of platforms do Russians use, and what resources exist for us to track their usage? For answers, I've turned to Kevin Rothrock one of the closest observers of RUNET in the United States, to get a sense of Russia through the lens of the internet. In this interview, Kevin mentions several websites he utilizes to do his work. I've linked them on the podcast website. Kevin Rothrock is RUNET Echo Project Editor at Global Voices, a news site that reports on civil society around the world, and web editor at the Moscow Times, Russia's longest-running English-language independent newspaper. He previously worked as an editor and translator at Medusa, and long before that, a research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute. Here's Kevin Rothrock. You wear many hats as a close observer of Russia, so I thought we'd start by having you talk about your various roles and what are your main interests in the country. So it's true that I, I wear many hats. I have, since 2012, I've been the project editor at Runin Echo, which is basically the Russia desk of a website called Global Voices. And last fall, I joined the Moscow Times as the new web editor. And before that, I was the I was an editor and a translator for Medusa's English edition. Uh, and I still actually help copy edit their their daily newsletter now. If you've already subscribed, if this is for your readers, if they've already subscribed to something like Johnson's List, the Medusa newsletter is similar, but I would say it's a little bit more compact. I, everyone I've ever spoken to about the Johnson's List, and it does seem like many of the Russia-watching scholarly expert community knows about it and is probably subscribed. Anytime I bring it up, it's always, oh, yeah, I need to catch up with that. Because <laughs> uh, it's long. It's long, and it's every day, and so on. And the Medusa one's a bit shorter, and um, at any rate, it's worth checking out, probably. Uh, and so, yeah, so those are the active hats that I wear. And before that, I was a research research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute from about 2009 until about 2011. And in between the AEI work and coming to Global Voices, I did a lot of blogging just on my own, basically. And so, so yeah, I'd say I've been, I've been a full-time Russia watcher for, well, since 2009, so... It's been, you know, eight years, eight or nine years now. And the main interests uh, are basically, I mean, my education background is in politics and history. And so I tend to write and read a lot about Russian politics, Russian political culture, that kind of thing. And when I got to Global Voices, I started focusing a lot on internet culture. And so that, and that's kind of where I've been working a lot since, mainly because I'm not based in Russia. 
um, for, for the readers that maybe don't know that I live in, in New Haven in Connecticut. And so I, I am not based in Russia. And so I, I work with a lot of online material because there's no alternative for me because, you know, I can't go hit the streets and do an interview or something like that because I'm not, I'm not on the streets, the mean streets of Moscow. There's, there's like a certain necessity to uh, focusing on online materials. What is it about the internet culture that strikes you? Yeah, it's kind of tricky because on one hand, if you're if you're studying or working on Russian internet culture, then there, there's it's almost like there's a conceit that it's it's special and different. And the first thing a lot of Russians will say is like, "Well, why? You know, we're just people using the internet, just like just like anybody else." And there's that's certainly true to some degree, um, but also I think there there are, there are unique aspects to the Russian internet. And I guess the most like cliche thing to say is that. Because Russia is generally a kind of closed society, at least politically speaking, the internet is sort of unique insofar as you get this kind of, it's kind of, it's a wider window for expression. And I think that, I mean, Russia being uh, an immensely important country worldwide, the expression that is allowed, wherever you can go and find more of it, the inter- being it being the internet in this case, that makes it kind of special and worth worth knowing about. Well, let's talk about this, the fact that you are watching Russia from abroad um, and you are on, reliant on the internet uh, and the media for your sense of things over there. What are some of the challenges and advantages of, of watching Russia from afar? And, and how does it, does it even matter that you're not there? Because you would probably rely a lot on the internet, even if you were there. Yeah, that's probably true. And I mean, a lot of the people that, that I'm connected to over the internet are you know, fellow Westerners doing, working as journalists in Moscow or maybe in Kiev or something like that. And, you know, we're, we're following the news together on social media and, and, you know, in the, in the Russian news media and so on. So there's, there's some overlap. Um, but I do think that not being there makes it a bit more difficult to gauge certain kind of, uh, I don't know, abstracts or, or a kind of like intangible tone that, that you get when you live somewhere. And so I don't know because if you ever if you ever talk to anybody that's just come back from Russia, one of the first things they will describe is this tone, this this the sense of things that they got meeting with people, and that's like in fact I I think there are lots of experts that are I don't know in D.C. or anywhere working anywhere in American academia maybe, and one of the one of the things that one of the almost one of the reasons that they make frequent trips out to Moscow or to wherever is simply so they can kind of recharge their batteries and refresh their, their credibility when they talk about what the mood is. And I do think that there's, there's like a significance attached to knowing what the mood is. And you can gauge that online. Certainly, you know, you read, I don't know, you read uh, members of the intelligentsia, the Tsovka or whatever, and you can gauge whether they're happy or sad or upset or excited about something. And that's, that can be pretty evident in, I don't know, their Facebook posts or their Instagram pictures or something like that. But going there, I think it's, it just opens you up to lots more information and you can, you can just piece together even more anecdotes. And so it's, it's not like, it's not like it builds some wonderful, you know, scientific argument, but it, it does just give you more anecdotes and it gives you kind of a flavor that you wouldn't get otherwise. And so I have to make do without that. And I do think it's, that is a disadvantage. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily, it's not an, it's, it, I don't think it is an, advantage to be outside Russia, but you can still leverage the internet in ways that it would still be possible to do in Russia, but I'm doing it as best I can from afar. And so, I don't know, some people have kind of, when I talk to some people that that know or are familiar uh, with my work, 
they're they often kind of chuckle because I in fact you did this maybe five minutes ago you said something like I don't seem to sleep <laughs> or uh, something like that right so yeah so I, I just try to be online as much as possible because that's where I get my information and and um, you know information pops up all the time and so it's it's ideal to be looking for it as often as possible yeah yeah no uh, the other thing I, I what going there reminds me of is that if you view the country solely through media and through the internet, you get sometimes can get a sense of the lack of any kind of normal life. One of the things that always kind of refreshes in my mind is that, you know, people go on their daily life and a lot of this big stuff that's going on doesn't necessarily consume them instead of what you would find on the internet. I, I often will write about kind of lighthearted stories that critics would say they're stupid <laughs> clickbait garbage. And a, a kinder reviewer might say, oh, it's that's daily life or that's something that, you know, isn't, isn't sewed into geopolitical punditry. It's just a sort of side story, but it's, it's, it's color, I guess. It's background color. That's how I like to look at it. And, and what about that? Because like, like many of us too, you, you have particular interests in, in the region and you have this challenge of, of writing for an English reading audience whose interest in Russia re- rarely goes beyond this exoticism. So what, what kind of Russia, in quotes, do you seek to capture and what, what challenges do you have communicating it to your audience? Well, I don't know. One of the things that has always attracted me to Russia is the, a, the Russian sense of humor. Um, and it's one thing that I think most Americans don't even know exists or they think it's, they think it's just nothing but, but you know, dreary drab jokes about potatoes or something. And I think that, that Russians are, are just far funnier than Americans know or can appreciate. And so... I do think that a lot of the, a lot of, when I when I write about Russia, I try to I try to kind of uh, convey some of the the sense of irony and the, even like the the an appreciation and an enjoyment of it that I find is almost ubiquitous in Russian writing about their state of reality or something like that. Can you give an example? Well, this is this is apparent. This is not a, a recent joke, but it's an adaptation of I guess a, a World War II era joke, as far as I know, but. It's something along the lines of back. This is this is this is already dated actually a couple of years because it used to be the conversation was always that Russia is losing the the information war, and with the election of Trump, I think the conversation is now that Russia has won the information war. Um, but you know, short of short of the, the Trump's uh, Trump's victory, the conversation was that Russia was losing the information war, which I think is still probably actually true. But at any rate, point being. Russia was was taking all this criticism for basically, you know, flooding the airwaves with propaganda, but it was not working. And so there was some some joke that started that made it made the rounds briefly on uh, on social media that it's 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 like an anecdote where two soldiers are I think sitting in a cafe in Paris and Russian aircraft are flying overhead and Russian tanks are, are uh, plowing through the streets and one soldier says to the other while sipping a you know, a, t- a glass of tea says, you know, it's too bad we lost the information war. <laughs> um, I see. Yeah. And I, I don't, I think the original joke is like, it's too bad we lost the air war, but the tanks are moving through or something like that. But and I, again, I'm sure you could, you could probably find similar jokes in other cultures or American jokes. I don't know. But that to me is, is there's something thoroughly Russian about it, extremely funny. And uh, I don't, I don't think that that Americans would expect that kind of thing from Russians. At least that's just my my feeling anyway. And so, and again, I'm not sure how to tie that in directly with, you know, work I do on a daily basis, but I do think that that kind of sentiment is a lot of what fuels 
my interest in writing my own stuff about Russia is wanting to kind of let other people enjoy that kind of uh, worldview. But you you certainly see that in the production of memes. There's a there's an irony that goes through a lot of them as well. Do you is that one of the places where you can you locate it? Yeah, I think I mean, I like memes of any culture. And so like I just I I think that internet humor for all of its kind of uh, nihilism and and juxtaposition is just a funny thing. And so it just, it tickles me in all kinds of ways. But Russian memes definitely, I think they take like what is common already in in American online media and they will inject it with, with with things that are more distinctly Russian, I suppose. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of memes that get popular in Russia are adaptations of memes that are already popular in, I don't know, the English language internet. That happens a lot of times, but but then they'll they'll throw a twist on it, I suppose, or they'll take a a theme that's common already and they'll they'll add their own spin to it. Like just just uh, earlier last month, I guess there was some meme started that started spreading where they would take still images from famous kind of like uh, folk tales that had been uh, animated in in you know the Soviet era. And they replaced the dialogue with crude, <laughs> crude captions that were written in English and transliterated Russian. But the English and the Russian was it's completely obscene and foul. And I mean, the joke was essentially, you know, you have this like wholesome kid story mixed with this obscene dialogue. But also the di- the dialogue also like has these. It'll play on like you know Russians, um, <laughs> Russians wanting something difficult but not. Something that isn't isn't logical. Like the the first one that took off was uh, was the the boy and the fish, Emilia or Emilia. I, I don't remember his name. But at any rate, he's ask he 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 catches the magical fish that'll grant him a wish, and he wants to ride an an oven, I believe. Um, and and the fish tells him that he can give him money, and then the boy's response is like, "Money is for pindosas," you know, <laughs> um, which is a he's pluralizing in an in an English language way a Russian obscenity, and it's it's again like this sort of thing I think is difficult to describe in a way where anyone's going to enjoy it, but I enjoy trying, <laughs> and uh, this sort of thing is I think that's a, a reasonably good example of uh, some of the Russian memes that that spread. What what do you think? What do you think they say about Russian users, internet users' attitudes? Like, do they convey something to you beyond just a funny joke? Well, I think that that a lot of these jokes that are kind of they're they're made at the expense of both the Pindosis or whatever, right? So it's making fun of Americans to some, to some degree, but it's also making fun of Russians' own kind of stoicism or patriotism. And so I think it's it's uh, self-effacing as well, which is, if it weren't that, I think it would be less interesting. Uh, but because because it's kind of directed in all in all directions, right? It's it's pointed in all directions. The 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 kind of barb of the joke, I think it it's uh, it's just it's more interesting that way. Like you said, you, you rely you know on the internet for your your as key sources to understanding Russian politics and society. So, what are some of the the main things that you go to? So, I usually start my day. By well, for one thing, I have I have so many push notifications set for all the, for so many different uh, mobile apps and and so many different Twitter users that the first thing I do is uh, cycle through whatever push notifications I got. Um, and so I have notifications set for lots of journalists, lots of kind of like snarky pundit people that tend to tweet out things, jokes or or comments that are worth translating, basically or w- worth knowing about because they're possibly something that will be discussed 
my other internet users and maybe some kind of amusing conversation will emerge later in the day. Um, and then I'll go to websites like one of my favorites to begin with is T-Journal, which if uh, if your readers read Russian and, and don't know about this website already, they should definitely check it out. Basically, it's uh, they, they have... I'm not sure. It's some kind of algorithm or some kind of process for ranking popular tweets that have occurred in the last three hours, last 24 hours, last week, last month. And it's a, actually a pretty wonderful way to see what's trending in Russian Twitter. Now, it doesn't capture everything. And it also captures plenty of things that are not really relevant in a kind of, you know, social way. Sometimes it's just kind of celebrity stuff. Um, like, not to discount that celebrity things are not part of society or whatever, but you you see what I you get what I I mean. And they also have a section of news that is basically a, a mixture of their own editorial newsroom writing up stories, and then they have submissions from their community. And it's basically it'll be it'll be like a few paragraphs and then a link to a story in. Uh, you know, a media outlet, whether it's a major national media outlet or a local media media outlet. And it's really, they have such a, a vibrant community that they, they get stories very quickly. They get stories you, you're, you wouldn't see otherwise unless, I mean, because they're basically crowdsourcing the collection of interesting news. And it's, it's a very wonderful project. It's run by an extremely young guy. And uh, he seems to be, he's, he's, he's kind of stumbled onto something that works extremely well. Uh, another website I check out is Lientach or Lientach. I'm not sure how they pronounce it actually, but it's, there are now two of them. This is the, this was the social media project of the old Lienta.ru that spun off and was handed over to users who then, it's, again, it's kind of an interesting approach to doing news is that they will basically track the news cycle and most of it's Russian news, although there are there is international news here too. And their whole value added is to have a kind of funny uh, photograph or funny photo edited image, and that's really why you go there. You go there for one thing because they're sorting through news from all over the country and the world, and so you can go there and every day they'll have you know maybe six or seven new posts, and so you the, the, whatever news that is is generally a pretty interesting story. But they also pitch it with like a, a funny joke or, or something, something that's amusing. And so they generally find stories that have kind of a viral quality to them or that are so outlandish that, that again, um, translated in English, they're, they're also interesting to people. So Lientach is one of these, again, I think I'm saying it right. Um, they're one of these communities that finds news stories that have a kind of, it's almost like it's the sort of stuff that would trend on Reddit maybe. And sometimes that means it's kind of a silly, silly kind of dumb story, but it's still amusing. And sometimes it's like a genuinely important story, but they are able to make a joke about it that it gives it oomph, extra oomph when shared on social media, I guess. And so like a lot of times I'll, I'll go there for inspiration, not just about what stories are interesting to write about today, but also how to pitch it, how to make it even extra, even more interesting to people that might not care about it otherwise. And that's what they're very good at. And then, so the other resources, obviously, there are plenty of wonderful, you know, newspapers and media outlets that, that are operating in, in Russian cyberspace, like, um, you know, Medusa, uh, Media Zona, Nova Gazeta, I mean, even like Commerce on Vietnam Steel. There's, these are like established sites, but they're still, you know, excellent sources for news. Also, the newswires like Maria and Interfax and, and TASS, those are still, those are pretty essential. One of the things that's, that's kind of amusing about, the Russian independent media is that at least, so you, you have, obviously you have journalists doing long form investigative reports, but a lot of the like breaking news sort of things that you see on, on, um, Sloan or, 
uh, Republic, what they're now called, or Medusa, or Mediazona, or I mean, a lot of these websites, they're basically just repackaging stories that are that are reported by the, the newswires like uh, RIA and Interfax and TOS and so on. So it's it helps to go directly to those websites, too. Let me ask you about your view of the Russian media, because, you know, there, there's a standard line that we hear quite often about how there's no independent press or there's very few little independent press, which is true. I don't discount that. But you also have, and, and you've just described a lot of it, a lot of really vibrant media and a lot of really important media. And even some of that important media comes from, you know, state-owned wire services. How do you understand the Russian media? What's your what's your opinion about it? It's It's not as bad as I think most people would guess most people in the west would guess that it's you know it's under lock and key and that you can't even find good or objective reporting in russia today and that's that's just not true um what is true is that the more accessible a news outlet is in russia generally or the, the more disseminated it is i guess the less the lower the quality is probably going to be so like the television networks in Russia, and this is incidentally not. This is there's there are parallels with the United States in this regard, right? And I think most media in most countries. Yeah, so it's not like again. I don't think that it's there are parallels, although it's not like a mirror kind of parallel, right? So I mean, in Russia, if you are, for instance, like in the last few years, there have been more than half a dozen crackdowns on online news media because of reporting on issues that turned out to be off limits, and so that's why you get. You know the evisceration of Lienta.ru, and that's why you get the uh, chief editors fired at at um, Erbeka and stuff like that. And so that sort of thing that's unique to to Russia, or at least it's it's uh, maybe not unique to Russia, but it, it's um, it happens elsewhere, obviously, but in in authoritarian environments, generally speaking. So yeah, so the, it's the the threat to independent media is very real. The damage to independent media outlets done over the last several years has indeed happened. It's very real, but there's still it's become a lot harder to be an independent journalist in Russia, but people people are still doing it, and they're they're having a hard time of it. But they're doing it because you know they're committed, and or that's that's their job. So they you know they don't have another profession, so that's what they do. So I don't envy Russian journalists, Russian citizens working in journalism in Russia, but there still is a lot of a lot of good reporting being done. That's not to say that there aren't issues that have been put off limits and aren't being reported now that could be, right? Because, I mean, like, there's plenty more everyone would love to know about Putin's family or Putin's private wealth and all that sort of thing. And you're not going to see too many investigative reports about that because, as we know, that'll cost you your job possibly or it'll cost your editor their job. And so that's that's unfortunate, right, that, that that's a consequence of that. And so the Russian media sphere su- suffers as a result of that. But it doesn't mean that on a daily basis there aren't good stories out there. And the other thing, even even the actually even the official television state media etc, you'll often get hard-hitting reports on regional issues or on officials that have been thrown under the bus and but then it turned then you get to you get to find out all the dirty secrets when the, when their their krisha is gone. And so you do get these explosions of and again it's you know it's 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 orchestrated to some degree, but it doesn't mean that you don't get flashes of uh of you know because even these journalists that have to work basically under censorship when they'll they'll occasionally be told you can take the gloves off against that one and then you get a kind of good story <laughs> and and I think even even in those moments where however orchestrated they are when the gloves come off you kind of see a real glimpse of what actually goes on right yeah, I, mean, I think so. It, it's it's not I mean I don't I I doubt I seriously doubt many people are fooled by 
this guy is just one bad seed. Sure, right. You've been, in, especially since you started with Global Voices, you said that you've been devoting a lot of attention to internet culture. And, and particularly, you do a lot of focus on the social media by, I mean, you monitor uh, social media by Russian political figures and pundits and other actors in the Russian political scene. What kind of social media platforms do they use? And, and how has their uh, social media, what do their social media habits reflect? And have they changed in the last five years or so? So the the most popular social network among Russians in general, um, the the two are Vkontakte and Adnoklasniki. Now, Adnoklasniki, I I don't hardly ever use or visit, as far as I understand. I mean, I'm sure there's there are good stories to be written about you know the, using information that's that comes from there. Although I just I'm not I haven't been the one to to do that, and I'm it's also not really it doesn't really come up in uh in in russian journalism either to be honest so it's not it it doesn't strike me that maybe there aren't good stories to be right there to be to be found there otherwise maybe the russian journalists would be doing it so i'm not sure it's actually an interesting question if if there's so many millions of people using it um and presumably sharing aspects of their their lives and and view, and their views of the world and so on i wonder why it's it's not used so often it could this could be a a big you know blind spot among the 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 hipster journalists or or and it could be mine I have I'm not, I'm not actually sure about that so that's maybe a, a question someone could explore but uh, so Vkontakte generally speaking there are that's <laughs> the way it comes up in my work anyway is usually if Vkontakte is involved in a story it's because someone posted something that <laughs> was was uh, ruled illegal or extremist or something, um, and the police have brought in their Vkontakte content as evidence against them. Um, and and part of this is because Vkontakte is is known to collaborate with police, whereas Facebook and Twitter not so much. And so if you post something, even anonymously on Vkontakte, and it's you know it's an image of God being I don't know dead or whatever, you get the idea. <laughs> then the police will help. Or the the network, it seems, will help you know de-anonymize you, and they'll help the cops track you down, which is a pretty frightening thought. Um, but people continue to use it because I guess they think it'll never happen to them. So that's generally how I've been using contact in my stories. Is that, that that's how it's come up? But anyway, um, there are there are also a lot of communities. There are a lot of vibrant communities on Vkontakte that where you where you'll find lots of good local stories. Because outside of Moscow and Saint Petersburg, it seems Facebook's less popular, and so there are a lot of you know, these like overheard in whatever city's name communities some, along these lines where people will share stories about, I don't know, failures in city cleanup or, you know, misappropriation of funds and stuff like that. Um, and so Contact does become useful for stories like that as well. Twitter and Facebook are obviously very popular. Facebook has a kind of like click to Sovka shimmer to it or i suppose because there you know you're speaking to your friends you can delete comments by people you don't like and also you, the, the thing about facebook like old form blogging is that you can write these long and uh rambling posts where you you share your views on the world and so a lot of the a lot of the pundits enjoy that naturally because they can they don't they're not limited by characters or at least i think maybe there is a character limit on a facebook post but but generally it's big twitter is interesting to me because i think you get more and it, I, this could be mapped i suppose and you could argue it scientifically but my impression is that you get more cross pollination of dialogue um because there's still so many anonymous users on twitter um where you know with avatars of of pepe or or uh i don't know some, something else absurd and you can, you can engage people you can engage strangers more easily 
And my impression is, is that, and you also get probably people being ruder to one another. Also, if you had to pick between Facebook and Twitter, you you might be you get you probably get a a wider view of Russian society and politics by following random people on Twitter. Well, not random, but you know, select select groups and so on. And then you have people using Instagram. I'm trying to think. So, so Instagram, sure, but but uh, I'm not sure that that that's used in a unique way. The, the the Russians use it in a unique way. The one thing I would suggest that probably people might not be aware of are um, channels on Telegram, which is a text chat text messaging chat app, and it's kind of it's I, I don't I think they introduced channels in the last two or three years, but they've really started taking off in the last year or the last few months. I say taking off, even the most popular channels probably still have, you know, 10,000 subscribers or, or fewer, but they're interesting. I mean, some of them are run by, by journalists, like Oleg Koshin has one, Maxim Kanyenka has one, and uh, I don't know, lots of, lots of them, lots of people do. And it's, it's interesting. I'm not totally sure why they do it themselves, um, because they also have Facebook, they also have Twitter, and Telegram, basically the advantage is, is that you have a small audience. And there's no way to comment. You can't write back at anyone. You just subscribe and you listen and you can share it with other users and so on. But that's that's the extent of it. So it has a kind of, it's more walled off in that regard. Oh, so basically it's just like, say, the, the messages from Oleg Kashin? Is that- yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. It's like he, he just writes these kind of like thoughts and he'll you can share, you know, multimedia as well. And you, a lot of what his channel is, is... He shares thoughts on things. He shares he shares links to stories, or he shares quote. It being caution, he just like shares these blocks of text that doesn't quote. You don't know where he's where they're coming from, but yeah, it's interesting. And there there are channels that are de- dedicated to to news as well. And in fact, there's a channel. I think it's called like Metodichka. I think that's how you say it, or Metodichka. I'm not sure where the emphasis is on that, but that's it's a channel. I don't know. It's again, it's one of these anonymous channels, as far as I understand. But they they actually broke a story in the last couple of months about the governor of Kaliningrad wearing this kind of like alt right symbol patch on his jacket. And as far as I understand, they're the ones that broke that story, and it then flood, it then made its way into the news. But they're the ones that called attention to a photograph that appeared in an interview he gave that they said, Hey, look at his arm patch. And that's how it then got into the news stream. And so, yeah. And and because this sort of thing is, is again, kind of, it's popular among journalists and so on, you know, there's, there's this element of like getting scoops and so on that makes it, I think, interesting for, for someone who's looking for, you know, to get information as, as soon as possible to get an early take on things. Now, I want to ask you about the, the, the rhetoric around Russia nowadays and discussions around Russia, both in Russia and abroad and here in the United States, because as you know, it's become quite incredibly toxic and polarized over the last few years. And to your credit, you don't fall into a single box. Um, in fact, you, you're often acu- accused by both sides of either being a CIA agent or a Putin shill. Um, so what do you think about the current discourse and, and how do you circumvent it? Yeah, it's I don't know. It's all it's kind of silly, I think. And and you're right that I get teased on on Twitter and and things like that. But I I don't know. I don't I don't take it very seriously. I think that I think that people find themselves on different sides of different issues. And you know, if your if your job is to do punditry, then you're going to decide to go one way or the other. I haven't really been writing very much opinionated stuff for the last few years, thankfully. 
And so I just try, I just kind of try to focus on what I think is a, a just a more entertaining angle on things. And so I guess there's there's an element of wanting to be provocative, and because that's how you draw attention to yourself, and that's how you draw attention to your work. And um, I don't know. Some people might look at that as unfortunate. I don't mind. I think it's fun. <laughs> but I do think that with with Trump's election, you have you have a lot of uh, sour feelings among along among a lot of the journalists that that write about Russia and among a lot of the just ordinary people that are tweeting about it because you have this basic you have a lot of anger that Trump won the electoral college and you have suspicions that Russia helped him do it somehow I don't have any special insights into that matter so I don't I don't know one way or the other but I think you are I mean basically like good-hearted liberal people already disliked Putin and now they and they assumed you know they blamed him for messing up Ukraine and for wreaking havoc in his own country but now they blame him for you know the 45th president and so I'm not sure that that it I mean I think people are professionals and it doesn't necessarily color their their finished product of their journalism and so on but at least on social media it does seem like people are even more eager to connect Putin to things. For instance, just yesterday, actually, the Treasury Department, the U.S. Treasury Department announced that they were tweaking sanctions to allow U.S. tech companies to file certain paperwork with the Russian Federal Security Service. And people immediately said, oh, this is the beginning of Trump lifting sanctions on Russia. And I'm not an economist, so I, I, you know, maybe I'm off base here, but my impression is, is that this was an expected move and because there one of the unintentional consequences of the most recent sanctions was that it might have actually uh, put up obstacles to exporting a, a wide array of us uh, tech goods to russia and we didn't the, the white house even under obama didn't never intended to stop iphone sales and things like that but even michael mcfall i think tweeted out something he later corrected it or explained but his first tweet without even looking into the issue, it seems, was how could this be true? You know, what's going on? <laughs> and yeah. it's, that, it's, that's like, you know, he, he's free to, to tweet however he likes and uh, anyone is, sure. And he wasn't the only one doing this sort of thing. So maybe he was just, he was worried on behalf of all the things he was reading. But it, but it, I mean, that kind of stuff is, that's spreading hysteria, I think. It's, it's, unfortunate, it's, it's not good in the end. The same is true even of like these all the rumors circulating right now about the arrested FSB agents accused of, of treason. Now again, like I'm not a security expert, and so you you know better ask you'd be better off asking Mark Galliotti or someone like what does it actually mean. But the but I think it's fair to say that no one's really sure what it means yet. And yet when th- those ish- when that story was being reported, that suddenly they were that there there are rumors that they're being accused of collaborating or passing on information to the CIA. That that story broke. I think like two or three days ago, it was shared on social media. This t- this is by American, maybe not necessarily American journalists, although probably some American journalists, but a lot of American users anyway of Twitter. And they, they clearly thought it was evidence that Trump had sold out American intelligence officers as a like concession to Russia. And like, it's just, it boggles my mind. Had, that hadn't even occurred to me, which I, I mean, it's not that it's, there's, there's there, you can connect the dots, I suppose, but. Yeah, what a time to be writing about Russia, I guess. I mean, it's it, in one sense, it's like more clicks than ever before. But but then you see why the people are sharing and clicking, and it's you think, oh gosh, I had no idea you'd look at it that way. And that's that's fine, I suppose. But 
the Russian media and the way it's portrayed America uh, in the last few years is, you know, a lot of anti-Americanism has been a part of particularly of, of American television, meaning of Russian television and Russian television. How has Donald Trump's election influenced the Russian media? Because I've been seeing things of a, there's a shift going on of sorts. Yeah. So, a lot, I mean, a lot of smart observers like, like Alexei Kovalev has suggested that the anti-Americanism has flipped because of Trump and the Russian pundits and, and the Russian kind of propaganda needs to find a new bad guy. I can see that. I think that that's, that's perhaps happening. At the same time, I don't know if it's that anti-Americanism is over. I think that it's, it's more that sort of the official line is now just pro-Trump and any, anything that falls outside that there's still plenty, thank goodness, that is American outside that. And you could, they're still happy to be anti that. And so that's why they can mock protests and they can, um, they can mock, you know, I don't know, U.S. celebrities and they can still mock mercilessly the U.S. Democratic Party and so on. And, and they can still, you know, mock John McCain as a Republican. And so really they, they now just have their guy. They have Donald Trump. They can defend his actions as president, but anything that, is in friction with that. Anything outside that is still fair game. And so I wouldn't necessarily suggest that anti-Americanism is over. Some people have have said that, and I don't know if I think I don't think I disagree that we're I'm in disagreement with with what they're saying because when they say anti-Americanism over, they mean that you know the president, the U.S. president, is no longer the number one baddie, and that's true. And so maybe there is there there will need to be a search for new nefarious forces. I don't think that's going to be very hard though. Um, because they've already, you know, you got you got George Soros, who whose organizations fund half of my jobs, incidentally, and so you, you got you got plenty of reasons, plenty of people to to blame um, this and that on, and you know, you, there's 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 already been now what is it like two 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 and a half weeks of of Trump in office, and, and you could just look at back at the last two and a half weeks of Russian reporting, and they've they've still managed to do plenty of complaining, um, which is fine again. Go ahead and complain. That's that's part of that's part of the job. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It, one of the things that's ironic, I suppose, is Russian, and it's I'm sure that there are people out there that hate the way that Russian propaganda is usually it's 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 treated as like a monolith. Like people talk about people will talk about Dmitry Kiselov's Sunday news show, and whatever it aired, that is Russian propaganda. That is like that's that's all of Russian propaganda. And to some degree, there's there's a use in pre presenting it that way, I think, because he is really the most popular pundit and because what others are saying in prime time really doesn't deviate that much. And so he's a, really a crystallization of it. So I can, I, I think there's good reason to present it that way. But at the same time, you know, there's more than one uh, pro-Kremlin pundit working in uh, in Moscow and so on. I want to get your thoughts on the general reporting on Russia from America, the American side. And... How do you explain the recent presence of Russia and a certain hysteria about Russia in the American media in the last couple of months? Well, I mean, part of it is the fact that U.S. intelligence agencies and the Democratic Party and the cyber experts they hired, you know, say that Russia hacked the election or whatever phrase is, is, is best used there. And so I think that it's not it's not just hysteria that has people talking about Russia. It's actually, it's, it is like, you know, information put out by, by experts who claim that their, their work has led them to this. But also I do think, and I, I don't think this is, this is, you know, a sh 
shocking or anything, but because Hillary Clinton Hillary Clinton lost the Electoral College, there 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 are more Americans out there that voted for the loser, and they're they're angry and they want to know how the hell that happened. And you know, there's evidence, or there are at least you know prominent people telling them that at least part of this has to do with something that Vladimir Putin did or that the Russian government did. And so people are angry about that. And they're both angry in a sense that they want they want to know more about that. So any stories related to new information about, you know, those those accusations, people are hungry to know that information. And also it's just kind of uh, alerted people to this meddlesome evil person. <laughs> and so now Russia is, is again... It, it, it's not commensurate with its with its geopolitical weight or its ties to the United States. So, in a sense, I actually think that people shouldn't be so interested in Russia. It's almost like, I mean, I'm interested for my reasons, but I know that most people don't care about Russia for the in the ways that I do. And so, why why are they clicking? What, what's the, what, why are they busy? You know, like getting getting all worked up about this. So, I do think that it has a lot to do with the anger left over from the, the presidential race and the, and the vote. And so, I would expect it to dissipate to be honest i don't know if i don't th- I, and this is always this is true of news in general i mean when when russia annexed crimea and had its uh, f- fueled the proxy war in uh, eastern ukraine which it's it's still doing obviously but when it fir- was first happening and maybe this will come back i mean it's 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 been kind of a big issue this week in fact um the the fighting in in the donbass so maybe russia will get another boost for that reason but um it's it's not a sustainable kind of thing it's the reasons for caring about Russia are just too tenuous, unfortunately, um, for, for in a mass way. I mean, I'm not suggesting that if you're a, that there aren't good reasons to care, but I just don't think that they actually appeal to to the general public. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I mean, I, uh, um, maybe this this uh, Russia hysteria is just going to last, and that that'll depend on what Trump does if he ends up kind of uh, appeasing you know, the Kremlin in, in some amazing way, although it doesn't seem like he's going to acknowledge the annexation of Crimea, which would have been the biggest, I suppose. Or, or maybe he'll go the other way and he'll give Ukraine nukes or something. I don't know. But um, that would also put Russia back in the news cycle for a while. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's it's impossible to predict, I think. But my intuition is simply says that the, the, the spike in Russia interests which is already waning, incidentally. It's not. It was the highest between the actual election and the inauguration. And since since the inauguration, it's it has been less of a of a kind of viral story. It seems to me, um, and that's that's normal. Um, there'll be there'll be something else down the road that'll you know make people care about Russia for a minute again, and then it'll stop. But I do think that the hysteria right now has a lot to do with accusations by people that that you know at least deserve a second look i guess and i'm not suggesting that the the u.s intelligence community should get a we should just believe whatever they say but you know it it it's justified to if they say that russia was involved in intervening in the u.s election that's worth stopping and saying oh okay well what's all that about and then what's what followed after that i think was a lot of panic and a lot of anger and finally for people who are interested in russia but aren't likely to delve into like the deep minutia of it all what would you suggest they keep in mind as they navigate these, you know, turbulent waters of Russia watching? I guess I would say that one of the important things I think is to remember that Putin and the regime and the, you know, the the Russian mainstream and so on, people recognize that it's flawed. People I think think that Russians are brainwashed in a way that, you know, that it's like something out of a, a movie or something like that. And it's 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 not really that. It's that they 
and this again, I'm, this is not an original um, observation or anything, but Russians are kind of uh, Russians are cynical, but so are so are most people, most modern people. I think. I mean, you have to be a religious fanatic not to be cynical. I think, and so uh, again, I, I feel. I feel bad generalizing and trying to, you know, describe the mindset of, of 140 million people. But um, my impression anyway is that there's there's a cynicism that it, it's healthy or it's unhealthy depending on how, how you feel about, I don't know, civil politics and so on and all that sort of thing. But there, the, the outlook is essentially that there's there are flaws everywhere. And this is maybe I'm now I'm slipping into some kind of nasty moral relativism and like they're bad, but we're bad and all that sort of thing. But I do think that that's, I mean, I think Russians are basically a little too cynical and Americans are a little too heartfelt in their rhetoric. I think, you know, under it all, we're, I, I like to believe that we're all just as cynical as I am, which is <laughs> why I, uh, why I write that way. Um, but, uh, but I do think that at least in terms of like the, the kind of rhetoric that people use in public, the kind that's thought to be, acceptable and ideal or something like that in russia it's generally this kind of cynicalness this this and under it all is this insinuation that like gosh we're all we're all just pursuing naked interests and we're all just kind of doing you know what we think we have to right now and the american in the american rhetoric it's almost the opposite it's like we're all avoiding our naked interests. And again, this might be changing under Trump, but at least up until recently, it was that there are these ideals we should be working toward. And sure, we don't, we don't meet our ideals, but we're doing our best. Gosh, darn it. That kind of thing. And, and so my, my, my feeling was always that, um, and again, this is something that I think is why I'm attracted to Russia is because they go, they take public discourse in another direction. And while perhaps they go too far, um, because having a few ideals isn't so bad, that I do think that from an like from the American perspective, that approach and that worldview can be healthy to keep in mind. And so Americans and Westerners coming to do if they're if you're coming to Russia watching right, uh, for the first time, or you're just kind of getting started with it, or you're if you're you're if you're feeling that you've been bitten by the bug or whatever. I guess I would just say like that uh, don't be don't, try not to be turned off by by that vibe, and hopefully. You know, see it as something that can, you know, that, that there's that's there's something there, especially for an American anyway, something that maybe is missing from discourse as it as it happens in the United States. That was Kevin Rothrock, RuNet Echo Project editor at Global Voices, a news site that reports on civil society around the world, and web editor at the Moscow Times, Russia's longest-running English-language independent newspaper. He previously worked as an editor and translator at Medusa, and long before that a research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Be myself and 